We're long in the tooth, but as we're going to talk about in this series, just because bull markets are old, that don't mean they have to die. You know, we'd like to say in the LPL research, bull markets die of excesses, not necessarily old age. Right. There's still some signs to say this bull, bull market and economic cycle have a lot of growth left. From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. I'm John Lynch. And I'm Ryan Dietrich. Clearly, we have some big news to discuss and share with investors this week. Uh, we've had... Uh, what appears to be the longest bull market in history. There is some debate on that, so we can talk about that. And certainly Turkey, any other issues that we should discuss? Well, John, I guess the only issue in my life was, was the first day of school. My wife was crying a little bit this morning as the kids went off. So, you know, other than that, markets are, markets are wild. There's a lot of activity, a lot of fun. But on the home front, things are a little volatile in the Dietrich family as well. More volatility at home with the kids. Yeah, we're in a different stage now. We're empty nesters, so we're trying to keep active in other ways. So, uh, all good. But certainly, let's start off with uh, the bull market because I know investors are uh, interested, concerned, wondering whether or not where we are relative to duration and magnitude. Clearly, the 1990s was a great bull market. But on Wednesday, August 22nd, many say this will be the longest bull market in history. Why don't you share a little bit about that? That's right, John. So that's the bottom line. Since March 2009 to this Wednesday, it'll be officially the longest bull market ever. Now, let's take a re- let's remember, though, the last time the S&P had a new all-time high, John, was January 26th of this year. So you, one could argue we're not technically still at – the bull market's not still alive. Maybe it peaked back then, so I'm trying to say. Now, the bull, the S&P is, what, a half a percent away from all-time high as we're doing this recording? That's right. So there's a very good chance it's going to get there. But, you know – Different ways to look at this. We had an intraday 20% correction in 2011, not on a closing basis. So we're playing with some numbers there. But the most important thing, I think, to remember for investors is just, yes, we've had that correction. We had a big correction in 2016 when the median S&P 500 stock was down about 25%. Energy financials cut in half. So we've had some bear markets during this nine-year run. And that's important to remember. As the economic cycle ages, we're going to have more volatility. We'll talk about that. But it's still been a very, very impressive ride nonetheless. Hasn't it been? August of 11, with the Treasury debt downgrade, October of 11, we tested those lows. And then again, obviously, with the oil concerns in early February, uh, it's been quite a run. 2017 was clearly a very narrow trading range with intraday volatility and certainly with with what we experienced this past March and what we've experienced in this past April, February and April this year. Uh, Clearly, volatility has returned. So it is exciting nonetheless, and uh, we'll see how far it goes. Now, if we go purely duration, I think we need to make the distinction for our investors. So we'll go the longest in duration Wednesday, August 22nd, 2018. But from a magnitude standpoint, we still have further to go, correct? That's right, John. Now, this is purely price, so not total return, but on a purely price basis, the 1990s bull market was up 417%. This current bull market's, we'll call it approximately 320%. So is it truly the greatest bull market ever? Probably not. It might be the longest bull market ever, but there is a distinction there. Well, there's still hope, investors, and we'll, we'll, we'll count on that. And the economic expansion would be the longest going into next year, right? I think it's next summer of 19. I believe be it's the- next June is when we crack uh, the longest there. So it's second longest. And that's since World War II, at least. Um, But absolutely, we're we're long in the tooth. But as we're going to talk about in this series, just because bull markets are old, that don't mean they have to die. You know, we like to say in the LPL research, bull markets die of excesses, not necessarily old age. And there's still some signs that say this bull bull market and economic cycle have a lot of growth left. And the excesses are really important because uh, I'm afraid all too often – too many people focus on 2008 as opposed that is the repeatable constant. And we really don't see that now that we don't have the excess leverage that enabled the economy to grow 5 or 6% in the early aughts, nor do we have the 
leveraged risks that could take us down by a similar amount. So I think investors need to keep that in mind. When you think and also about duration and magnitude of, of expansions in bull markets, the typical bull lasts about five years and is up 150%. So even though this 320% price gain uh, in the current bull uh, fails to match what we have experienced in the 1990s, it, it's still a pretty good number and investors need to appreciate that as well. I'm sure they do. Uh, well, let's hope they do. Absolutely. And you know, you talk about excesses. The one I like to mention that's easy to understand, you look at inflation and wage growth, John, before the last three recessions, year-over-year wage growth cracked 4%. And soon after, between six to nine months later, we had a recession. Well, wage growth currently is around 2.7%, I believe. So okay. that's just one example of it. But again, there are not simply, there simply aren't the excesses we've seen at major market peaks. And that's why this economic cycle can continue. I'm glad you mentioned that because we've seen some inflation data recently that has talked about, you know, approached 2.9% on headline CPI, consumer price index. We've seen uh, uh, 2.4% on the CPI index when you exclude the volatility of food and energy pricing. Uh, my concern is that the discourse is kind of uh, suggestive that that's a number that's going to cause the Fed to slap on the brakes. And I think it's important for investors to appreciate that the Fed has a mandate uh, two mandates. One is to keep a lid on inflation, and the second is to ensure as full an employment situation as possible. The price stability aspect, the Fed's target is 2% for price stability, not runaway inflation. And I think that's so important to keep in mind. So when you talk about 2.7% uh, on the wage number, we all like to emphasize to our investors that wages represent 70% of business costs, so it's really hard to have a persistent inflationary threat without the participation of wages. And I think the Fed's unofficial mandate has to do with the currency. Our dollar can't get too strong, which would result in emerging currencies getting too weak, which would make emerging currencies uh, run into difficulties servicing existing debt, which is a good segue to what we want to talk about next, the, the crisis in Turkey. That's right, John. You know, when you talk about the crisis in Turkey, I'm going to ask you a few questions here. So. It all spurred up, I guess, technically two Fridays ago when it became well-known there's issues in Turkey. But you look at the price action in Turkey. You look at some of the things going on. They've been, their currency has been in a lot of trouble for a long time. Their, economic, their stock market has been in trouble for a long time. It's cut in half. I mean, you know, is this really just out of left field, or should we have seen this coming the whole time? Yeah, I think, un unfortunately, it's, it's not necessarily economic or financial. There's a lot of political situation also, right? There's an uh, investor concern has... Uh, become uh, more prevalent relative to uh, President Erdogan's uh, power and his uh, oversight of the uh, their central bank, which is run by his son-in-law. Uh, there's been a lot of concern over you know, the experience they had in 2000, 2001. They were able to secure a lot of financing once they released restrictions on foreign investment, and that fueled a you know, boom times. I mean, it was among the best, if not the best, emerging market uh, GDP performer for uh, several years there. Uh, you know, that always works until it doesn't, right? And how does one go broke? As Hemingway said, gradually, then suddenly. So, so you had this great pattern. Now, all of a sudden, suddenly, people are concerned about uh, his his sway over the central bank. Uh, it's becoming very clear with the lira weakness that they're going to have difficulty uh, servicing debt over $220 billion in corporate debt alone. So that's something to keep in mind. John, you're right. You know, it's, obviously, it's a small country. I think I saw it's less than 1% of total GDP around the globe. 
Turkey makes up about half a percent of the overall market weight of the Emerging Market Index. So it's small, but that's the thing, right? It's, is it the first domino to fall? Remember, it was 1997, the Thai bot. We had the issues in Thailand. Small country. People maybe didn't think it'd be a big deal, and it did spread. The Asian contagion, U.S. market corrected, not 20 percent uh, right around there. But could this be the first domino to fall to really hurt other emerging markets and maybe the global economy in general? What do you think, John? Yeah, there's there's always a concern, right? You never want to be dismissive of any of the uh, risks out there. But if you look at the Mexican peso crisis in 1994, the Thai bot crisis in uh, 97 and 98, uh, emerging market volatility escalated, right? Uh, down by a third in 94, down by almost two-thirds, more than a half right. at least, in the late 90s. And the S&P 500 kind of hung in there. So to the degree we like to say there is a coupling of the global economy in many respects, there's been a decoupling uh, now if uh, – and you also had different currency, who was hedged against the dollar and who was pegged to the dollar in the late 90s compared to what we're seeing with the lira today currently. So the lira is down about 40 percent for perspective. Uh, you know, our dollar has certainly gained some strength. Uh, other factors to keep in mind, you know, Turkey is still going to grow almost 4 percent this year. Uh, projections are still for 3 percent growth next year. Now, they have 15 percent uh, overnight borrowing weights in that 15 to 17 percent range. So if you think about that, I think the important uh, thing for our investors and the way we'll be positioning portfolios in our investment strategy is to really delineate between uh, those with current account deficits in the emerging space and those who have current account surpluses, those that are manufacturing and export driven as opposed to those with services. And I think if you're able to make that distinction and recognize the the percentage impact to global economy or to the emerging markets uh, equity index, I, I think that'll be an important distinction. I think you'll ultimately be able to see a pivot in the emerging space as we get some clarity because the real big deal is uh, the trade deal with U.S. and China. That's right, John. So, you know, as of Friday, emerging markets down about 12% year to date, S&P up about 7%. So we're seeing a pretty wide, you know, fish mouth, so to speak, in terms of the differences there. You mentioned the 4.1% GDP growth expected in Turkey this year. I thought that was kind of fascinating when the U.S. is maybe around 3% or so. Also, emerging market earnings are still, they've become down a little bit over the last month or so. We're still looking at double-digit EM earnings growth this year. And valuations, I mean, tell us a little bit about valuations. They're pretty good, still solid in emerging markets, right? About a quarter, if not a third, lower mm -hmm. than what we're seeing in, in the developed marketplace. So, um, Again, never want to be dismissive of market risks out there, but when you're positioning diversified portfolios and, and focusing on the long term, uh, you know, my favorite, my favorite uh, data point on the emerging markets is 6 billion people. And you multiply 6 billion times anything, and you're going to get a pretty big number. And if you're able to look at that relative to attractive valuation, strong earnings growth, uh, flexibility in their economic models where they're largely absorbing the transition from 10% GDP to 6% GDP in China and embracing that. That's right. You know, you mentioned 6 billion people. The one stat I read in Barron's this year that I will never forget, it was powerful. 1 billion smartphones will be sold this year. 70% of them will be in emerging markets. Think about that. Now, the other thing, John, last week, if you look under the surface, kind of intermarket analysis, gold was down. Okay. This was a true... I'm not minimizing it, but if there's a true crisis going on, you'd think gold would have probably increased last week, and that obviously wasn't the case. S&P was up, Dow was up, I and mean, we had gains last week in the U.S., and gold was down. So if someone just saw that, you wouldn't be so concerned, but the headlines were pretty scary. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting about gold. Um, 
I looked over the weekend, and uh, gold was also down during the Mexican peso crisis and the Thai bot crisis. That's right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of curious how what's this perceived uh, safe haven uh, hasn't necessarily lived up to its billing. What I'm most concerned about is that copper has slipped. I'd like to think copper is more a function of dollar strength, emerging currency weakness until we work out the China uh, trade situation. And that may not happen until after the election because President Xi has a job for life, whereas uh, uh, leadership in Washington uh, is really counting on this November. Yeah, you know, talk about copper. Just a couple of months ago, it was breaking out to nearest high, nearly new highs for the year, and now it's in a bear market. Some of the headlines are talking about copper in a bear market. So, yeah, we're watching that one. But from a purely sentiment point of view, I do wonder if there's a flush coming here in copper and emerging markets with a lot of negativity. Obviously, well deserved. But that's uh, think about retail. Twelve months ago, no one wanted to buy retail. It's one of the strongest groups the last twelve months. Retail. So it makes you wonder if emerging markets, as everyone hates emerging markets now, could that be a contrarian low expectations by the next twelve months? I think it's uh, could be ripe for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Something investors should keep in mind, uh, and domestically, never short a dull market, and certainly an argument for diversification. Well, let's transition to the lightning round before we uh, before we close up shop with today's podcast. Uh, first off, let's talk about. Uh, earnings. Second quarter earnings came in, another 25% gain, 9% revenue growth. Uh, what are your outlook for earnings? Well, John, you're right. At, just on July 1st, S&P 500 earnings were expected to be up about 20% year over year for the second quarter. Now it's coming in just under 25%, right around where we were in the first quarter. So all in all, you have to think, what drives long-term gains? It's earnings. Going back to the 1991, the S&P 500 has been up 10% or more in terms of earnings 12 times higher every single one of those times. So we're looking at strong earnings this year, about 20%. Expectations next year are double digits again. Yes, there are all these concerns out there, but earnings estimates in the U.S. have increased over the past month and in the midst of all these trade worries and concerns. Earnings uh, still look really solid here. And that's a curious aspect. We had an experience in, in the mid-80s and again in the mid-90s, or maybe 84 and 94, where we had a very strong GDP north of historical averages, where we essentially had a market that failed to keep up with earnings growth in that strong period. So maybe you're just in this little consolidation period. The ensuing years, though, saw very good growth. So I think that's something we need to keep in mind as well. That's right. John, lightning round number two question. This one goes to you. Uh, two big events this week. We have the Fed minutes coming out, but then Jackson Hole, where we have a new Fed chairman, and it's his first real chance under the spotlights at the Jackson Hole conference uh, symposium, I guess is what we call it. What do you think is going to happen, maybe at the Fed minutes briefly, but then Friday with Jackson Hole? Yeah, Jackson Hole, uh, for those of you who are unaware, uh, Jackson Hole is the world's leading, or uh, Davos may be up there also, certainly, but uh, it's a, a conference with the world's leading economists and policymakers, and uh, with the world's leading economists, there are always kind of question what kind of buffoonery goes on at the hotel bar uh, over that conference. But nonetheless, we have to be mindful of some of the speeches that we've made. It's not really a policy-setting conference, but it's more of a policy discussion conference. And uh, years past, they've talked about changes in in the structure of the financial markets, certainly uh, constantly concerned about inflation. Yes, Jerome Powell will be making his big speech this week. I think it's important to recognize that I think we were blessed to have Ben Bernanke at the time we had him. I think we were blessed to have uh, Janet Yellen at the time we had her. Uh, Jerome Powell is not burdened with the expectations of a PhD in economics. So he is more of a market-savvy uh, leader of the Federal Reserve. And I think that's going to be terribly important to keep in mind to really see whether or not 
market signals are suggesting the Fed should stop. And I, th- I think that'll be very important. And it'll also be important to see uh, what he has to say about wage inflation, because he has made some comments in recent Q&A sessions about his concerns relative to whether or not there's too much inflation or not enough inflation. I think that's something that really scares monetary policymakers. That's right. And I'd like to thank you, John. I know you were invited to Jackson Hole this year, and you turned it down to stay in the office <laughs> yeah. with us, so I appreciate that. Sure. The invitation got lost in the mail. That's right. Well, what about uh, when you get presentations like this, that can add to some volatility, Ryan. You know, we are in the dog days of summer in August right now, and uh, we have midterm elections coming up. You know, you've done some great work over the past year highlighting to our investors the importance of recognizing that volatility escalates leading into a midterm, but 12 months thereafter, things tend to shake out. Why don't you share a little bit about that? That's right, John. I like to start it like this. We were spoiled in 2017. I mean, there were only eight days that had a 1% either up or down day for the S&P 500 on a closing basis. So this year, when we had that first 10% correction in nine days in early February, it caught everyone off guard, even though we said expect more volatility. We've had two 10% corrections so far this year, John, but it, again, it's a midterm year. You look back at history, midterm years, sure enough, see about a 17% from peak to trough intra-year pullback, which is the largest out of the four-year presidential cycle. But like you said, if you're willing to hold every single midterm year low since World War II was higher 12 months later, and the average returns up close, I believe, over 30%. So if you think February this year were the lows for the year, which we think they probably were, very good chance you're going to be higher. Maybe even see some more gains before next February comes around a year later. So vol- expect volatility. And, hey, where are we? Like you said, dog days of summer. August, September, October, three months. You definitely can see some downside volatility during a um, midterm year. But still, all in all, the fundamentals and some of the technicals still suggest you know prices will still be higher before the end of the year. Excellent. So, John, the last question that we have for you here in the lightning round, the administration has proposed just recently earnings reports maybe twice a year. We all know earnings four times a year, right, companies? Four times a year of earnings. But the administration said maybe let's just do it twice a year. You know, what do you think about that? That would be a major change for our industry and pretty powerful. Absolutely. That's something we all should keep in mind. You know, we uh, continually emphasize to investors a focus on the long term. Uh, We have – how many CEOs out there who publicly are in a position and CFOs out there are public, publicly in a position uh, and under under the duress of hitting a quarterly earnings number. Uh, I think part of the concern there is whether or not companies with a quarterly focus can truly you know, make those investments that may cause them to take it on the chin in the near term, but exponentially generate better profitability in the longer term. So I think it's a healthy discussion, uh, awful lot of uh, minutia to consider, but they, they do do this in Europe, and uh, it has worked relatively well over there. So I think it's something we should definitely keep in mind, and I'm kind of curious to see, you know, it's only been recently announced, but, you know, part of the concern, for example, with share buybacks, you know, to meet quarterly mm-hmm. numbers and stuff like that. You wonder to what extent uh, will this cause businesses to invest in CapEx, one of our major themes for 2018 and 2019, to the degree businesses spend on capital expenditures, take advantage of recent uh, tax policy that can uh, enable an acceleration for immediate expensing of, of, of business investment. I think that'll be a very important combination. So if you have that as a one-two punch, immediate expensing benefits over the next four years, plus uh, an emphasis on longer-term numbers, 
by reporting only quarterly. That may have very positive long-term benefits for the market. Yeah, you mentioned CapEx. I mean, CapEx leads to more productivity. More productivity can lead to higher wage growth, and that all can lead to a longer extension of the uh, economic cycle. Productivity in the second quarter just came in last week, two, um, the strongest number we've seen in about three years. So productivity could be starting to come higher. Now, John, I've got a bonus question. I know you don't see that. You didn't see this one coming because I didn't tell you about it. Mm-hmm. Who you got? Eagles, the Eagles band, or Michael Jackson? The Eagles band or mm-hmm. Michael Jackson? Which one do you like? <laughs> well, I'd have to go with the Eagles on that one. Well, you're right, because just this week I saw the Eagles' greatest hits is the all-time leading selling album just overtaken Michael Jackson Thriller. So there you go. You're, you're, uh, both of them are winners, but you're, you're jumping on the bandwagon with the true winner with the Eagles' most well, sales ever. a little ever. nickel knowledge in 1984... I went to the Thriller con- concert in Philadelphia. I figured you could do the moonwalk. That's right. I yep. yeah. I pulled a hammy. Yeah. <laughs> so so with, with that mental note for everyone, that mental visual, we will uh, close out today's podcast. For further information, please follow us on social, on Twitter, at LPL or at LPL Research. Thank you and have a great week. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual security. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. The economic forecast set forth in this material may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal. Investing in foreign and emerging markets securities involves special additional risks. These risks include, but are not limited to, currency risk, geopolitical risk, and risk associated with varying accounting standards. Investing in emerging markets may accentuate these risks. All indexes are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Unmanaged index returns do not reflect fees, expenses, or sales charges. Index performance is not indicative of the performance of any investment. The MSCI AEFA Index is a capitalization-weighted index that tracks the total return of common stocks in 21 developed market countries within Europe, Australia, and the Far East. The MSCI Emerging Markets Index is a free-float-adjusted market capitalization index that is designed to measure equity market performance of emerging markets. The Standard & Poor's 500 Index is a capitalization-weighted index of 500 stocks designed to measure performance of the broad domestic economy through changes in the aggregate market value of 500 stocks representing all major industries. The modern design of the S&P 500 Stock Index was first launched in 1957. Performance back to 1928 incorporates the performance of predecessor index the S&P 90. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, LPL Financial makes no representation as to its completeness or accuracy.